Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. My guest is Richard Powers, whose latest book is Bewilderment. This is the 13th book. The last one, The Overstory, won the National Book Award. Other books, Orfeo, The Echo Maker, which won the Pulitzer, The Time of Our Singing. Richard Powers now lives in Tennessee in National Park, and that's due to the research for The Overstory and how you became kind of obsessed with living in the forest. Before we went on the air, I asked you about how it went during the pandemic. You responded that being in the National Forest allowed you the option of growing your own food and not heading out into unmasked Tennessee. Is that right? (laughs) Right. It has actually been a remarkably lovely place to have spent the quarantine. In fact, it's hard for me to think of a luckier place that I could have ended up for basically the year and a half of of lockdown. I moved to the Great Smoky Mountains because of the overstory. When I was researching the overstory, I kept reading that if a person wanted to see what an Eastern broadleaf old growth forest looked like, if you really want to see what an uncut forest might have looked like 10,000 years ago, that the Smokies was a great place to come. In fact, it contains the largest contiguous chunks of primary forest left east of the Rocky Mountains. There is almost no eastern old growth forest left, but there is 120,000 acres of it in the Smokies. And I thought, boy, I have to see that. You know, I'm writing this book and Uh, I've become absolutely obsessed with trees, and I have to go have a look. And I went just for a research trip, a three-day research trip. And when I walked up from the recovering forest up into the uh, old-growth parts of the park, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, I was thunderstruck. From one step to the next, it was like going from black and white to color. And the look of the forest was different. The smell was different. The sound was different. The species count was different. And I just thought, this is what my continents, my country's forests look like. And I had had no ideas. The first time that I've ever seen a fully functional eastern broadleaf forest. And I was so moved by that, that I was still thinking of the place a long time later, many, many months later, maybe eight or nine months later. And I thought, well, that's got to tell you something if you're still obsessing over a three-day trip almost a year later. And I went back and I bought a house and I've been living here ever since. And I was living here when the lockdown came and it just turned into a wonderful place to be concentrated and focused where I lived. I didn't have enough broadband here in the mountains of of Southern Appalachia to do any Zoom. So I was the last person in North America ever to have to do Zoom or any other kind of teleconferencing. And 
I basically had a year and a half to learn about these forests, to watch them, to be present in all seasons, and to write a book that unfolded over the course of a year between this father and son that starts in the Smokies and ends in the Smokies. So happily, this forced restriction on travel and on social interaction resulted in a book that's very strongly rooted in the place where I live. Richard Powers, when I spoke to you about the Ovis story, you had written a book and submitted it. That is not bewilderment. That means there's another Richard Powers book out there. No, I don't think so. When we spoke, I was starting bewilderment, but I was starting a very different kind of book. I'm trying to think of what you might be thinking of, but I, I actually was underway the last time I was through town and we spoke, but that book changed quite a bit once the pandemic hit. And once we went through that quite cataclysmic and nerve-wracking final year of the, of the Trump administration, which also contributes greatly to the final shape of bewilderment. You had talked about it being a much more compact book than the previous one. Mm, yeah. So there was an earlier version or partly written earlier version that you were finishing up on at the time, and that went back <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. and you began to rework it. Exactly right. Yeah. It did end up, even in its uh, multiple revisions and with the complete change of cast, that happened between our last conversation and publication, it did end up a much more focused and intimate, shorter and simpler book than the overstory. It's less than half the length. It has two characters in place of nine characters. It's entirely told in the first person by the father of this uh, troubled nine-year-old. And I do think that Although it shares many of the themes of the overstory, uh, that kind of concentration makes for a very different kind of reading experience. Then let's go back to the earlier draft and see how it changed. Now, this is the story of this widowed father and his son, but in the earlier versions, was the machine, the MRI machine of a character named Courier, was that in the earlier versions? It feels to me as if something sort of took over and changed what you were doing. Very much so. The book did start with my discovery of this strange real-world technique called decoded neurofeedback, where one person has their brain scanned in real time while they're in an emotional state or learning a task or engaged in some activity. And then those brain patterns are recorded. And a second person, then also scanned in real time, is given cues, interactive cues, uh, based on their own neural activity that allows them to train and gradually learn how to emulate the patterns that were recorded in the first person's brain. When I read about that, I just thought, I have to write a story about that somehow, because this is, this is an off-the-wall strange technique. And if it gets stronger, if it gets more powerful, just a little bit more than it, it's currently capable of doing, you know, just that little sci-fi push into the not quite there yet, that I would have a story about a strange kind of 
guided machine-mediated telepathy, or as they call it in bewilderment, the empathy machine. So I had started writing that, and I was focalizing it through Martin Courier, the person who runs the experiment. But the subject of the experiment was a jaded, somewhat embittered older woman. And it wasn't until I hit a wall in that draft, basically. And when I get stymied, it's, uh, it's my subconscious telling me that some choice is wrong. And while I could push on, the pain of that, the resistance that I feel is usually indicative of the fact that I'm on the wrong track. And these days, I really don't panic when that happens because I have this half a million acres of wilderness just outside my door and I can step out and start walking and allow myself to go for hours and hours, usually without seeing people. And the solutions tend to come almost automatically just as a result of that rhythm of being out under the trees, moving my body, uh, swinging my trekking poles and breathing and listening to the rivers. I was about three or four miles down a fairly remote trail. I hadn't seen people in a long time. I wasn't directly thinking about this problem that I had run into in that first draft. But my unconscious was obviously working away on it because I suddenly felt that there was this odd weight on my shoulders. It felt like there was a little boy sitting on my neck, you know, on my shoulders. The way that I would sometimes see in the park when a dad, you know, brings his kid out for a hike and uh, the kid is too small to hike the distance that the dad wants to hike and he ends up having to carry, you know, carry the child back, back to the trailhead. That's what I was feeling. I was feeling like, you know, this unexpected visitor was hitching a ride on me. And I just kind of imagined him sort of scrambling down and walking alongside me on the trail. It's a very fleeting thing. It only lasted for a couple of seconds. But the sense of this child, this little boy, who was absolutely awestruck by the forest that we were walking through. I had that very powerfully, and then it was gone. And I thought, who was that? And by the time I got back to the trailhead, I thought, that is the hero of my book. And I took everything apart, and I started again. And that's how Robin Byrne came into the book. Richard Powers, Robin Burns' father, this is the first person from his perspective. You make him a widower and you give him a very strange profession that consists of looking at spectroscopes of planets out in the universe and coming up with what they are. Does that profession actually exist? <laughs> yeah. Theo Byrne, who's in his late 30s, he is widowed just a couple of years before the start of the book, is an astrobiologist. And your question is germane because if you had asked me when I was Theo Byrne's age, in my late 30s, did astrobiology exist? I would have said, no, there is no such thing. But it is a fully credentialed and fully fledged field. Now, in fact, it's growing rapidly and maturing rapidly, and it's actually subdividing now into sub-interests. But astrobiology is a field that's devoted to asking the largest possible questions about life. How does it get started? Under what conditions? How easy is it? Or how difficult is it? 
What would it look like if it happened using different kinds of chemistry? If life arose on planets very different from Earth, what would it look like? What are the extremes of the possibilities for life? So astrobiology is not just about looking for the, the life out there, whether you know bacterial or, or compound or even intelligent. Astrobiology is also a way of reflecting on the progress of life here on Earth, how biological systems interact with the physical and chemical and atmospheric systems of planets. That's what astrobiology is all about. Theo, in particular, is interested in finding biosignatures in the atmospheres of exoplanets. By the way, the first exoplanet was discovered when I was in my mid-30s, and we now know several thousand planets that lie outside our solar system, and more are being discovered all the time, and many, many more will be discovered when the James Webb telescope finally launches at the end of this year. Is that the telescope that they're talking about in the book? Well, I take some liberties with all kinds of things in the book. I've already mentioned that I do an extension of decoded neurofeedback and push it into a capacity that lies beyond what the technique can do right now. So I've already entered into the realm of soft science fiction in that regard. But if I were to describe bewilderment and the relationship between realism, you know, verifiable fact and imagination, I would say it's almost, you know, how science fiction talks about near future books where it's our world, but with some new addition, some slight change that puts us on a different trajectory. I would say Bewilderment is a kind of near present book. It will remind readers of the world that we've just come through. There are, oh, many, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are many recognizable convergences with the wild couple of years that we've just managed to survive. And this catastrophic moment that is posing great challenges to our continued survival. But there are changes as well. There will be many things that surprise or estrange the reader's impression of what planet exactly they're on. And I wanted to keep that a kind of uh, constant surprise so that as you're turning the page, you're not sure whether this is Earth or some kind of parallel Earth, some kind of near Earth, some kind of alternate history that we've entered into that is very close to our own, but different in some profound ways. So yes, there, there are a couple of telescopes, space-borne telescopes that are referenced in the book. Their fate is part of the plot of the book. And what I depict with regard to the convergence of an anti-science climate that is very familiar to, uh, to anyone who has lived in America in the last couple of years, and the fate of Theo's field is a, a plausible trajectory. It's one that we dodged, but it's one that could very possibly emerge again in the near future. That certainly was on my mind very much because I wasn't sure of when it was written. I couldn't tell whether you were reflecting back on what we'd seen or predicting some kind of semi-future alternate world, right. if that makes sense. Right. Right. You know, the book came and solidified once I discovered what it was that I was doing. Writing the book actually went fairly quickly. 
again, much faster than the overstory did. And I finished up and submitted the very final draft of the book in October of 2020. And it went into production before the election. Now, there's something in the book that actually predicts something about an election very much like the one that we, you know, we survived in November of 2020. Exactly. But it was interesting because as the book went into production and we went headlong into that election and we ended in that chaotic period that followed the election all the way up to January, to mid-January, that sense of what is going to happen to this country, it pervades the book in a predictive way. And I remember my editor calling me and saying, Rick, you know, look at how crazy this is happening, you know, it is going now. And, you know, it's, it's looking like there's going to be this showdown, but, you know, maybe Biden is going to win, but who knows? There's this huge wild card. Do you want to take the manuscript back and rework it? And I said, no, I think, I think the prediction that I make in the book is going to get more powerful in the light of real world events. And I think it is best to just let it ride and let it collide with history as it actually unfolds. Richard Powers, the character of Theo has thousands of science fiction books. Now, I can't mention all of them because some of them play a role in the book. Right. But that brought up the question of the relationship of the science fiction literature that you might have read with not merely the plotting, but also these strange stories that Theo tells his son about distant planets. Mm. Are any of those from your reading, or is all of that Richard Powers? So, yes, these interludes, these planetary romances, these excursions that father and son go on together across the, the universe, it turns out that they are one of the few things that actually calms Robin and reorients him and that father and son can do together in the evenings in a way that's a kind of happy shared experience for both of them. So as you're reading the story of this tumultuous year in this father and son's shared life, you're also coming across these interludes of planets that basically are the imaginary journeys that Theo and Robin are making. When Theo takes Robin to a planet, that planet is usually built on solid astronomical possibility. That is, the planet will resemble a category of planets that this search for exoplanets is turning up. But the speculation about how life would develop in such a place is also commensurable with Theo's field of, of astrobiology. That is, when they visit these worlds and Theo says, well, here's what life is probably going to look like in such a place. That is astrobiology's best guess about the possibilities of life in very alien environments. However, as a fiction writer, as a literary writer, I'm also doing something else. I'm trying to combine in this book two forms of literature that have always appealed to me very deeply and that have always seemed like incommensurable kinds of stories. So on the one hand, there's the, the realist story of Theo and Robin, Theo telling in the first person 
about his intense and troubled son, the problems that he has come up against in school, the growing behavioral problems that are gradually forcing Theo's hand, and everything that he would like to do to try to avoid medicating the boy prematurely. You know, that intimate psychological kind of social realist domestic fiction is intercut with this strange, almost avant-garde set of, you know, planetary voyages that resemble, in a way, the kinds of inventive fiction, imaginative fiction that have always deeply appealed to me, too, with writers like Italo Calvino or, or Alan Lightman, or in my case, the great progenitor of the planetary romance, Olaf Stapledon, in his 1930s book, A Star Maker. They are hugely exciting to the imagination to be able to just say for a page or two, let's imagine the entire rules of life and reality changed. And that's the appeal. They're tremendously exciting as an inventive, imaginative, thought-driven form of fiction. The difficulty for a lot of readers is they don't have that narrative forward motion. They don't go from you know, exposition through rising action and climax and, and denouement. So what I was exploring in this book was a way of taking these two great loves that I have for a certain kind of realist fiction and a certain kind of avant-garde fiction and putting them together in the same form and allowing them to play off each other. When you were growing up, were you reading people like Asimov, Heinlein? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. As a boy, I was very snobby little boy. And I, I thought, oh, you know, serious guys read nonfiction. And they don't read this kind of, you know, character-driven fiction because that's, you know, that's about, uh, just about us. I want to get beyond us. But I was secretly reading all this science fiction, which, of course, when I was young, was a kind of second-class genre. The complaint was that it somehow neglects character and realism in favor of these great intellectual excursions and thought experiments, which of course was the perfect thing for me when I was Robin's age or older from 10 to let's say 16 or 17. I read tons of that stuff. And the planetary romance was coming into its own then in the late 60s and, and early 1970s. And all kinds of practitioners were using the idea of other civilizations elsewhere to explore earthly ethnography and earthly sociology and things like gender and race and all kinds of things. On some unconscious level, all of this early reading invests itself in the entire work of Richard well, Powers. I was amazed by that too, the ways in which the creation of this book was unconsciously to me while I was thick in it, a recreation of very early preoccupations. And I think part of that was when I was channeling different children who I knew, unusual, intense children, you know, well beyond the norm in one way or another, I was thinking of very specific children when I was creating Robin. But of, of course, necessarily, I was reliving my own childhood. And I think that that fascination that I had with science fiction when I was beginning to really read books in earnest, uh, followed from that. And there was another weird way in which I was unconsciously recreating my own early life experiences in this book. 
when I went back to reread and rework the final drafts of the book, I kept thinking, my word, there's a lot of Buddhism in this, in the place, in the speculation and the philosophical undercurrents and in the ultimate insights that Theo and Robin make their way toward over the course of the book. Where did that come from? And then, of course, it took me only you know, a few seconds to realize that when I was 10 years old, I was getting on a plane from Chicago, Illinois, and going to Bangkok, Thailand, where I would live the next several years of my life as an adolescent and a teenager. Um, so, of course, having been dropped down in a Buddhist country at that age and going back to recreate my own sense of, of perspective from childhood, that Buddhism would also trickle into the story. Do you think that living those years in Thailand changed on some level how you view the United States as an adult? Beyond a doubt. And I think it has been really fundamental to my identity as a writer. When I went to Bangkok, I was 10 years old. You know, when you're 10, you are ready to travel to other planets, right? And, you know, bring it. And you get on the rocket ship and you go and, you know, very quickly you've adjusted to all of the strangeness, the differences in ritual and orientation and behavior and culture, because that's what a child does, you know. But when I came back to the States in my mid to late teens, I felt tremendous culture shock coming back to the country that I thought was my country, that I understood and knew very well. But, you know, coming back in the 70s, thinking that I was an American, all of a sudden I wasn't. And because of those years away, I was no longer an insider. And I went and finished high school and, and went to college, but I was outside somehow, and I was sitting on my own shoulder. And I think that's a functional definition of what a writer is. You know, you're in the middle of life, you're experiencing, you're interacting, you're feeling, you know, you're, you're a participant, but you're never entirely a participant. You're always partly an outside observer. That odd insider-outsider relationship began with me when my life went on this different trajectory. And it's been with me ever since, really. It seems almost as if it's easier for you somehow to write through Robin's eyes, even though it's you know Theo telling the story, to understand Robin in a way that maybe some other people cannot. Yeah. You know, I had initially toyed with the idea of focalizing through Robin, doing a kind of third person close focalization through Robin, because he is undeniably the center of the story. But I also thought that the qualities that make him different, that separate him from his schoolmates, that separate him from the normative world, get a lot of their power from the fact that they aren't entirely understandable to outsiders. Or to his father. Correct. Who is also, despite his bottomless love for this boy and his desire to do anything in his power to protect the boy from the world, he does not entirely have the freedom or the ability to enter into this locked room that is his son, this intense, often inexplicable mix of confusing and contradictory behaviors. So that's where it seemed to me, I will tell this in the first person, the father will use the son 
as the locked room mystery. But of course, as with all first person narratives, when you start saying, here is a story about this other person, you're pointing the flashlight back on yourself. You know, every first person narrator is unconsciously revealing so much more to the reader about what he chooses to to emphasize, the decisions that he makes, the observations, the depictions, all of those come from the sensibility of the first person narrator. And often the reader ends up seeing the person who's telling the story better than the storyteller sees himself. So it slowly occurred to me that Robin was not the only outsider in this story, was not the only person struggling to fit into normative society and to feel at home in the United States of 2020. And Theo gradually, even without knowing it, unconsciously betrays the strong affinities that he has with his son because of his own differences, his own very strange ways of looking at life here on earth. As you tell this, I keep going back to your walks through the woods where you come up with these images, these ideas, and the best way to do it. It's it's revelatory. It's almost as if it was always there and you just discovered it. Yes, and that's been kind of a late life discovery on my part, a different way of working that began with the overstory and absolutely dominated the writing of Bewilderment. When I was a younger person, my, you know, my first novel uh, was published in 1985 when I was 27. And I wrote for decades with the same kind of approach to the task of creating a novel. I would say, I will sit here at my desk in my room until I have a thousand words. And once I do that, I will release myself, and then the day is mine to do uh, what what else I need to or would like to with the day. It was a very words-first kind of approach to life, and it was very portable. You know, I lived like that in many places here and abroad over those decades, thinking of myself primarily as a writer and primarily as itinerant, who didn't need to be in any one place or another, and who could make this discipline work just through the force of my own personality. And it wasn't until the overstory that everything got stood on its head. And I began to think, you know, why is it that I have never actually lived in the place where I live? Why doesn't place come first and and the, the all of the more than human life that shares that place with me? And when I inverted that sense of relationship that I had between life and place, and presence, you know, all of a sudden it became an entirely different kind of day for me. When I wake up in the morning, I say, what is the season? What is the weather like outside? What's in bloom? What elevation are the animals? What's happening in the forests now? Where do I want to be today? And I go out and I see what the neighbors are doing. And interestingly enough, I don't have to be out for very long. I don't have to walk very far or see too many things before the story starts to percolate in my head. And sometimes I have to rush back home because there are so many ideas after a few miles that I can't keep them all in my memory. And, you know, the writing just 
flows. But it's lovely to have reached an age where the writing is the bonus and the living is the art. Richard Powers, I was going through Google and I found an interview you gave about the overstory in 2018 with The Guardian. There's a quote here, which I guess you made then, and I guess it's probably even more timely now. I'd like you to talk about that for a second. Environmentalism, you said, is still under the umbrella of a kind of humanism. We say we should manage our resources better. They're not our resources, and we won't be well until we realize that. That hit me very profoundly because it's something we don't really think about. Yes, I think the culture of human exceptionalism, of being separate from and in control of the rest of the living world, the culture that actually doesn't see the rest of the living world as alive or full of agency, becomes at its extreme kind of neoliberalist position that basically says we are the only sacred and interesting entities here. And of course, it is our prerogative to use everything else here as a means toward the end of extending our own individual well-being. And I've slowly come to realize that that position in itself causes fear and anxiety and paralysis because there is nothing in that position that allows for connecting to a meaning beyond yourself. And that means that, you know, death becomes an absolutely terrifying and all-destroying thing. And I think that the culture of commodity-mediated capitalist individualism is terrified by death. And I think also that estrangement, that human estrangement, has been what has allowed us, that has allowed us to give ourselves the license to diminish the richness of the world so intensely and so greatly. And when we treat the climate catastrophe or species extinction as a series of exercises in technology, questions of you know, um, molecules per million in the atmosphere that just need to be addressed as chemical or physical problems, problems that have only to do, you know, with corporate behavior or that can be, that can be solved through a series of technological interventions. We continue to suppress the anxiety and the fear that are the consequences of not taking the rest of the world as a living thing with agency and interdependence and interbeing. It's only once we release meaning from these private processes, these individual processes, and start to see living in the world, re-landing on earth, reintegrating ourselves, recommitting to engaging a future of reciprocity and interdependence, only then does the fear start to diminish and the, the, the joy of finding something larger than ourselves begin to make the future seem confrontable and even meaningful in all its precarious trauma. One thing, maybe it's easier for you living out in Tennessee. You can close your eyes, go outside, open your eyes, and there's this 
world that you're part of. For those of us who live in a more urban environment and get online and see a political party that seems to be almost a death cult to the members of its party in terms of vaccination and masks. And I'm just wondering, Richard Powers, do you look at this and what is your take? Yeah, well, the take is certainly spelled out in the narrative course of bewilderment. But let me engage this uh, question of how do you find that external meaning? How do you find interdependence and interbeing in an urban environment. It's important to point out that when we say, I am going out into nature or I'm, you know, I'm going to leave the city and go into nature, that we're making a terrible mistake. Every place, no matter where you live, has tremendous affordances and the place itself wants to manifest in kinds of life that are adapted to that place. There's a that sort of teleological vocabulary is going to ring some warning bells in some people's minds. But just think about it, that life has been adapting to wherever you live for huge amounts of time. And there are indigenous species, and there are ways of solving that place, no matter where that place is, and no matter what humans have done to that place. There is no landscape in the world that hasn't had human modification. Some landscapes are more built environments than others, but nature is never, that is the life force, let me use that word, is never more astonishing or powerful or impressive as when it adapts to heavily, intensely human environments. And to, to be present to that, to attend to what the various species of life are doing where you are is to find that change in consciousness and also to find ways of working with the affordances of your local place to begin to rehabilitate wherever you live. And that is itself a meaningful activity. You know, you do not have to, as I have, pitch your tent on the edges of old growth forest to feel an affinity with living things. They're everywhere. And to get that, that humbled state of mind that allows you to begin to see what's happening 24 hours a day in your neighborhood is hugely salubrious. Two final questions. Bewilderment, why that title? I've loved the word for decades. I first came across it in a Lewis Thomas essay called On Matters of Doubt. And Thomas, who was a, a physician, but also a brilliant essayist, very lyrical, poetic essay, essayist, whose most famous book is probably The Lies of a Cell, was in this essay on matters of doubt, searching for something that could break down the two cultures divide. You know, C.P. Snow's famous assertion that we're splitting into scientists and technologists in one culture and humanists and artists in another culture, and we're in danger of really rupturing and, and losing a common thread. And Thomas was looking for a quality that could unite those two cultures, and actually that would be a fundamental part of any human pursuit, any exploration or discipline that a human might pursue. 
he says in this essay, I think I found it. I think I found the one thing that underwrites astronomy and chemistry and biology and psychology and sociology and theater and music. He says, all pursuits, whether the sciences or the arts, have one basic thing at the bedrock in common. He says, it's called bewilderment. And of course, when he uses it, he shifts the word from a purely negative valence to something that actually is positive and asserts. And I've thought, you know, I've thought about that. What is that? Well, you know, bewilderment can mean confusion or or disorientation and all those negative senses of losing your way, but it can also mean amazement and astonishment in its purest sense. In its etymological sense, it just means going back into the wild. And it's those two senses of the word, the absolute disorienting bewilderment of our present moment in America, here in violent cultural war with each other at a politically perilous moment. How bewildering is that? But also this journey of father and son back into the wild world that never left them, that has always been all around them. Final question. Richard Powers, this book was handed in and worked on during the period of the pandemic, but was eventually turned in, and that's several months ago. Have you begun working on another book? You know, I thought I was done when I finished Overstory. And when I finished Bewilderment, I thought I was done again. The thing about writing is it's like those processes of attention and presence that I was describing earlier. It's just a way of keeping track of what you're seeing, of what you're coming to understand and how you're growing. Eventually, the exhaustion of completing a project stops. You're swearing that this will never happen again starts to subside and you just start to think, what did I see today? What stories are out there? And little by little, you know, I can't help myself. Uh, new kinds of narrative uh, begin to take shape in my head. So I am a couple months down in a new project. If we do both live long enough to do this again in a few years time, no doubt I'm going to be saying, oh, that idea changed quite a bit on the way from there to here. You've been listening to an interview with Richard Powers whose latest novel is Bewilderment. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.